1: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Baer. Will being in the world of the rich and famous make you happy? Proust's narrator in Search of Lost Time tries it out. Will love bring you happiness? Proust's narrator who's consumed with sexual jealousy that ends in a shocking turn of events in the sixth volume of his great novel, The Fugitive, finds a disturbing answer. Will art create contentment? I spoke with Caroline Weber, professor of French at Barnard College and the author of Proust's Duchess, who has not only read the masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time, all 3,000 pages and 1.25 million gorgeous, supple, and utterly brilliantly composed words several times, but who's also done the painstaking research in archives among letters, diaries, small notes, bills, and newspaper notices to find out who were the real-life people on whom Proust modeled some of the most memorable characters in a sprawling book. The Duchess of Guermont, a figure of enormous intrigue in the novel, was one of the first manifestations of celebrity culture in the modern age, presaging today's influencers who are known simply for being known. Let's read Proust together, maybe not all 3,000 pages right now, but Carrie is an amazing guide into this novel, which is considered one of the great masterpieces of world literature and has shaped the minds and lives of so many. So, I'm tremendously happy to have Caroline Weber here. Carrie, first of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Think about it.
0: Uh, Uli, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: It's so great. So, Carrie and I went to graduate school together and also college, actually. Yeah. A couple of years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And both of us read Proust, the seven volumes, you know, labored through it in college Mm -hmm. and graduate school. And then you embarked on a recent project that's now culminated in the publication of your most recent book, Proust's Duchess, which took you about seven years.
0: That's right. It took me seven years to write, and I'm very relieved that it's done.
1: And the book focuses on three women. And I want to ask you something about the curiosity or what got you into this book. And I want to start us out with a quote from Marcel Proust. This is from "One in Love, from the novel within the novel. And I'll give you the French quote here, and I'll read to you one of the English translations. And this is about curiosity and love. And when I reread, I (laughs) reread a couple of volumes right now, I felt the whole time I'm listening to somebody who's in love, not just with Albertine, but with all of his characters. Yeah. So Proust writes in this. this is what Swan, he's now discovering Odette, and he's starting to research her life and he becomes obsessed and jealous. Swan is after this woman who he will marry. And Proust writes, but in this strange phase of love. But in this strange phase of love, an individual person assumed something so profound that the curiosity he now felt awakening in him concerning the smallest occupations of this woman was the same curiosity he had once had about history. And all these things that would have shamed him up to now, such as spying tonight outside a window, tomorrow perhaps, for all he knew, cleverly inducing neutral people to speak, bribing servants, listening at doors, now seem to him to be fully as much as were the deciphering of texts, the weighing of evidence, and the interpretation of old monuments, merely methods of scientific investigation, with a real intellectual value and appropriate to a search search for for the truth. truth. It sounds to me what you did (laughs) was... (laughs) You were spying on I people. Was. You I were totally listening in on doors. You were following women around, like Proust was at some point.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, Uli, that is such a great quote. And it's funny because I actually just taught this first volume of the seven volumes. And the first volume is called Swan's Way. I just taught it this semester. And I was encouraging my students precisely to kind of look at the Proustian novel as a detective novel. And Swan is a character who's an older generation than the narrator, who you find out about 5 volumes in is named Marcel. And Swan as you show in this quote becomes fixated on this woman that he falls in love with, but he learns very early in their relationship that she's actually basically been lying to him about everything. And so the whole He falls
1: in love initially. She's associated with the phrase of music and she's very beautiful, yeah. but otherwise he doesn't know that much and then he discovers what her background he is. He
0: discovers what her background is and in fact even more than that he kind of sees what he wants to see in the early phase. So when he looks back on things like a detective would, even examining the dark corners of his own past for evidence that he overlooked at the time, when they were first introduced at the opera or something by one of his friends, like the friend indicated to him that this woman was a courtesan, that basically she could be hired for not even that much money. And Swan kind of winds up neglecting that one bit of evidence early on and then to his would, horror as, as we, we do. As we when we fall in love. Of course.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because Proust starts out by saying so Swan is taken with her Yeah excises some information and focuses on what he wants an image of her to be for him.
0: That's exactly right. And then he kind of faces this increasingly fraught situation of discovering that the image and the reality don't correspond at all. So you go from an idealized image of this woman, Odette, and the narrator Marcel will undergo more or less the same process with this woman he loves, Albertine, later in the novel. And so Swan and Marcel are almost always on these parallel tracks. And here when we're learning about Swan, we're also preparing to learn about Marcel engaged in the same kind of detective work. But yeah, the dynamic Proust is so interested in revealing in these cases is that when we fall in love we suspend disbelief. We don't take in the information that we should take in. And then when the going gets tough, when we start to suspect especially infidelity or untruth in the relationship then coming from the partner, we start looking everywhere and trying to cobble together something resembling, as this quote says, truth. Something resembling a real history of the person we've fallen for.
1: And then we have two challenges. We have the real person out there in the real world, as we would say. Yeah. And then we have in our own mind That's the right. image which has become so powerful yeah. enabling and important for us that we have to undo that image
0: mm-hmm.
1: Proust's novel spends a lot of time outlining or delineating the process by which we make sense of our own sense making
0: yeah yeah.
1: Which for some people it seems a bit strange. One of the first editors said it's thirty pages of someone trying to go to sleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which it kind of is. And <laughs> the first thirty pages are a little bit slow in that sense. But yeah, but it is. It's a much deeper investigation than just, you know, dipping a cookie and tea and having some childhood memories. It really is trying to make sense of the way in which we make sense of the world and constantly discovering the degree to which we are wrong. We Proust used to say famously, and it's it's such a strange thing to think about from somebody who was renowned for the detail with which he recreated this world of turn-of-the-century Paris, he used to say, I didn't know how to look at things. I wasn't observant. I didn't pay enough attention. I didn't seize enough details. But that's actually the human condition. We go through life every day noticing some things and not others, and very often in the fullness of time, we realize that the details we were paying attention to weren't necessarily the ones that would have given us a deeper or fuller sense of what was really happening around us. Because we don't know
1: what to value and what to excise, what's important, what's negligible. And when you started on your project. Yeah. So the <laughs> Duchesse de Germont, who yeah. is one of the main figures. Can you just say what the role of this figure is in the seven uh, volumes? In the seven
0: volumes, sure. So I wrote this biography of three women who were the three real-life models for this one character in Proust's seven-volume novel, and that character is the Duchesse de Germont. And basically, she's one of the few characters in Proust's novel who's really there in all seven volumes. Like, spoiler, but Swan dies in volume four or five. There are other characters who kind of come in and out of the narrative life, Marcel, the first-person storyteller, who's a kind of a stand-in for the author Marcel Proust. And the Duchesse is in all of the seven volumes really mostly in her capacity as the queen of Parisian society. So Paris in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which is the world that Proust describes in his novel and the world that he grew up in, is one that paradoxically, even though France had become a democracy in 1870, a year before Proust was born, and it was the third time France had become a democracy since the revolution of 1789... Paradoxically, this aristocracy, which supposedly was swept away with these revolutions and with this move to kind of a democratic style of government, the aristocracy retained incredible social prestige really through World War I. And Proust was not born into that world. He was born into an affluent upper middle class family. His mother was Jewish. His father was a self-made man, a brilliant surgeon and public health official who was like a specialist of cholera and malaria and all these diseases that people really needed to understand in the 19th century when there were epidemics of them all the time. And so Proust came from an affluent, influential, thoughtful, and educated family, but he, growing up, became fascinated with the world to which he and his family were not admitted, which was aristocratic society in Paris. And so the Duchesse de Guermantes in his novel is the woman who's the ultimate tastemaker and gatekeeper and goddess of this aristocratic elite. And the young narrator, who also comes, like Proust himself, from a bourgeois, influential, moneyed, but not noble family really fixates on her as kind of an ideal of a certain world that he wishes he could be accepted into, that he wishes he could know more about. And over the course of the seven novels, he basically finds out that it's not as elite as this aristocratic world is. It's not a milieu that is going to bring him any particular happiness. The people in it are incredibly unhappy most of the time.
1: But that realization takes a while because initially he's on the outside looking in. That's right. You have a quote in your book called The Princess Bibesco," and she says, in the middle of Paris, The monde formed a world as distant from ordinary people on the streets, as the moon is from the earth. And so Proust is looking in, he's young. Mm -hmm. Like all of us when we're young, we think there are worlds out there to conquer, to access, to get into. And in some ways, the world you're describing, the world of the aristocracy, incredible social prestige, Mm -hmm. no more economic or political real advantages. They were stripped of all these kind of rights. They didn't have to pay the kind of taxes, et cetera. They just had direct access to power. And suddenly they are left not entirely different from other periods of history where an entire generation of people are holding on desperately to power. And a new generation is sweeping in and saying, we have new values, new norms. Your assumed birthright is no longer given. That's right. I mean, look at our country and the generational splits that are happening of people assuming we've always ruled, we've mm-hmm. always had the power, and other people are challenging
0: that. Yeah, yeah. No, it really is a watershed period. And I think one of the things, because Proust was preoccupied both as a human being and as an artist with this kind of aristocratic milieu, which did loom so much larger than we can really imagine today, except to compare it to certain kinds of extreme form of celebrity culture and celebrity worship, that you know, it's kind of this world where everything is better and people are richer and they're more beautiful and they're having more fun and their friends are more exclusive and, and more interesting. And it's real power. And it's real it's power.
1: celebrity or the status or the brand name, the name recognition, which is political power. So somebody who dominates the headlines and the news has actual power. Because, That's right. And the thing you point out at that moment, what becomes a force in society is public opinion. Yeah. So these three women that you talk about and their names are in themselves kind of, they're like out of a French pastry shop <laughs> or something. <It's> Genevieve, Alivi, <laughs> Bizet, Strauss who is the widow of the composer Bizet, yep. who composed Carmen, a big flop, dies a few weeks later. Yeah. And then she marries somebody later on, the heir of a big fortune, who becomes the personal lawyer to the Rothschild family. Right. Lord de Sade, yeah. <laughs> of the name de Sade, the Marquis de Sade. Yeah,
0: that was her great-grandfather, the most who, pornographic, who been... shocking author in French history, basically. And you said
1: that was still kind of an unmentionable, but Lord de Sade turns it into something, a matter of pride. She yeah. said, I am one of the de Yeah, So it's kind of a for everybody to say, wow, there's a woman who actually doesn't cover and hide her name.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, it's like she was like a punk rock person in, you know, in the 1880s when everyone, even in her family, was kind of embarrassed. You know, these are, we forget that in late 19th century France, it still corresponded to what was called in England sort of Victorian era and all of the sort of modesty and primness and prudishness that implies when you talk about Victorian England really also applies to France at that time. So to come forward at that moment as a woman and say, yeah, I'm the great-granddaughter of the Marquis de Sade. Laura loved to curse. She loved to talk about, you know, sort of obscene situations. She devoured her great-grandfather's pornographic opus. And and so, yeah, it it caused a real frisson in that world, but it was something that she used precisely to sort of turn herself into a celebrity.
1: (laughs) We'll get to that moment of how these women turned something that was very little into something that was very much. The (laughs) next one is Comtesse Adéome de Chevigny, Elisabeth de Rigou, de Caramon, Chimay, Comtesse Crefule. Yeah. So this is her name. So she's the Comtesse Crefule. She's one of the main characters. Yes. All these women have very few rights. That's right. Women, what is their legal status in the French Republic, which is a democracy, which has brought us égalité, fraternité, liberté? What is the status of women around 1880,
0: 90? Yeah, no, that's such a great question, because it's something that I think we wouldn't automatically assume was as different from us today as it was, which is to say that even though the revolution of 1789 had brought about, you know, freedom and equality for men in France, the revolution of 1789 explicitly excluded women from its declaration of the rights of man. And that tradition. Of excluding women and not considering them to be citizens, full citizens under the law, continued into the period that Proust was writing about, which was called the Third Republic. And so, women actually, one of the things that shocked me when I was researching this period, because even I, I mean, I'm a French scholar hadn't fully appreciated the degree to which a hundred years after the French Revolution, women were still so marginalized and disempowered. Women had the legal status of minors for their entire life.
1: So they were n- never emancipated. No. And when they were 18, they couldn't start having their own business transactions or no. property. They went from their fathers owning them or... To being, their husbands. To their husbands. So, That's exactly right. So you wrote about three women who are on the outside of society and at the same time the center of le monde, of the gratin, of the social yeah. sort of Nexus and Proust is also a bit of an outsider. He said he has a Jewish mother. Yep. His father is an epidemiologist, self made. So he's looking in Mm -hmm. and he grasps something about people who want to fit in and belong. Yeah. And when he, what's his first access to? There's a very funny scene you describe actually, which is the curiosity when you bribe the servants and you spy on people. Oh, (laughs) yeah. No. And
0: that, in fact, I love the quote that you opened with today, Uli, because it really does, it describes Proust's method so well and not only his approach to people he loves or is fascinated by, as he was by these three women in real life. But also, you know, it applies so well to the sort of Historian's method or the biographer's method. And Proust essentially became kind of an imaginary novelizing biographer and historian of these women and their world. And so, yeah, he would bribe the servants at, especially at the Comtesse Grefful, who was sort of the grandest of these three women and the most difficult for outsiders to access. She very proudly only consorted with people of her very high aristocratic birth or with visiting royals. So even though France was a democracy at the time, Paris was, as it still is to some extent, Today, a draw for people visiting from all over the world, including all of the European royals who'd like to travel there for fun. And so Elizabeth Graful had this very closed circle of friends that was very, very, very grand. And Proust figured out early on as a young man, he was her neighbor in Paris. He and these three women all lived within, and even though a few of them moved at different points throughout their adult lifetimes, they all at all times throughout their lifetimes lived within about a 10 block radius of one another in the right bank in Paris. And so this woman was a woman, you know, the Comtesse Greful was this, this grand dame, this aristocratic kind of cipher and celebrity, but she was also Proust's neighbor. And so Proust would go by the house and bribed the servants for information about the parties that she had. That was a method that he had stolen from the gossip columnists of the day who were just beginning what we would recognize today as a sort of a tabloid, a celebrity tabloid press. Gossip columnists at the time in Paris would bribe servants so that they could get inside information about parties that they as mere bourgeois members of the press weren't invited to they would bribe noblemen with gambling debts who were many in that world the aristocracy in this world that was called the monde or the Gratin at that time the aristocracy loved costume balls and so people would actually go into these parties in costume who didn't belong there and then write about it as far as we know proust never attempted that method of infiltration but he was somebody who from a very young age was anxious to get information about this world that seemed so hermetically sealed. And what's his first access point? It's through a school friend. Yeah, it's through a school friend, and that connection actually highlights another degree to which or another way in which he was an outsider. Not only was he half-Jewish, not only was he bourgeois, not only was his father self-made, the father's father had owned a little grocery store in a provincial town. This was not considered something socially admirable in late 19th century Parisian society, but Proust was also gay, and he was Quite open actually about his sexual orientation from very early on, and so he went to high school at this kind of prestigious but mostly upper-middle-class high school on the right bank called the Lycée Condorcet. And one of the boys that was basically his first homosexual crush, at least the first documented one, was the son of Geneviève Alevi Bizet-Strauss. And so Proust fell in love with this boy, Jacques Bizet, who was the only child of Geneviève and was the child that was the only lasting offspring of her marriage to the unhappy and only posthumously famous composer Georges Bizet. Proust fell in love with Jacques Bizet. Jacques Bizet was resolutely straight, wasn't interested. Proust wrote a series of kind of, and one of my favorite parts of researching the book was reading Proust's letters in high school and the poems that he wrote for Jacques Bizet and Jacques's cousin, Daniel, who was another relative of Geneviève Strauss. And Proust tried so hard to get these boys to love him, and they just kept refusing him, kept turning him down, kept shunning him, eventually kind of ganging up on him and bullying him with their little gang of cooler friends. He was a little bit of a weirdo, too. I mean, he was a geek. He was sickly. He had asthma. He wasn't a popular student in high school. But the weird consolation that came for him out of this connection with these boys was that he got to meet Jacques Bizet's mother, Geneviève, and she was a kind of a perfect way station for Proust on his attempt to make his way into the aristocracy, because like Proust, she was from an upper middle class, a very rich Jewish family. And yet she had managed to get herself embraced by aristocratic society, which as a rule was typically fairly hostile to Jews, as well as to people from non-aristocratic classes. And so Proust, when he's still in high school, basically what would call a senior year in high school in the late 1880s, he started going to Geneviève's Sunday Salon, her gathering of all of her kind of glamorous and mostly aristocratic friends. And it was, as the least important person in that weekly gathering, always sitting in the worst seat on the fringes of the group with nobody particularly talking to him, unless he volunteered to pour tea or try to make himself useful. It was on the fringes of that world that he started seeing up close and personal what this aristocratic society in Paris was like.
1: And there's- Something he wants to glean from that. He thinks there's a code of conduct, there are rules, there are ways to behave. And initially, as you said, he starts thinking maybe by entering society, this kind of high society, Mm -hmm. you can find a way to happiness. That's right. Because your life could be ordered in certain ways. It could be beautiful. That's right. It's about elegance. Yeah. About what the Italians call sprezzatura. Exactly. It's this kind of incredible elegance of conduct on every level of your being. Right. He discovers sort of slowly, mm-hmm. he's quite fascinated, and his friends mock him a bit. And you mm-hmm. say in the book, he sometimes is the critic is edged out by the person who really wants to be in Le Monde. Yeah. Sort of. But he discovers that these rules of conduct are sometimes so stiff that they become kind of inhumane. Yeah. So the first encounter with the Duchesse de Garmont mm-hmm. in the novel, what happens? So he goes to the alivi Strauss house because he's not sublimating but shifting his affection That's right. from the boy to the mother yeah. and, and he's really I don't think it's actually a substitution because Proust, throughout his life he will have relationships yeah. gay relationships mm-hmm. he will be in love so it's not yeah. that he sort of substitutes and leaves that behind but he becomes a bit obsessed with the mother and her mm-hmm. circle yeah when he meets duchesse de gourmont in the book for the first time he also discovers pretty quickly that these people are not as good their behavior would make you believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, and one of the reasons I wound up writing this book was because when I reread Proust in my early 40s, you know, you and I were talking before that we turned on the microphones about how reading Proust when we did in college and in graduate school, we didn't really like him that much. It seemed like, you know, who is this man who spends 30 pages talking about, you know, trying to fall asleep? And this guy who just seems to chase duchesses around Paris, one of the famous scenes in the novel that I open my book with the real life version of is Marcel actually follows the Duchesse de Guermont around her neighborhood every morning for a few months, like on her morning errands, until one day she turns around and basically yells at him because it's this creepy little kid she doesn't know following her around. And Proust did that in real life with one of these women, Lord de Sade. But one of the reasons I want wanted to write this book when i reread proust in my 40s was i couldn't believe how astute and also hilarious his portrayal of aristocratic society was and that's a world that i've studied and encountered in other Aspects of my work and my life, and I was really taken with the kind of black humor of this narrator, who for the first three volumes of the seven-volume novel, all he wants to do is get invited to a party at the Duchesse de Guermantes. And in volume three, he finally gets invited to a dinner party, and everybody there, each guest, is more horrible than the last, even though they all have either princely titles or ducal titles or their counts or their marquises. They're all incredibly grand on paper, and they are ignorant, they are arrogant, they are smug, they are stupid, they are boring, like everything you can imagine to the point where when Marcel leaves the dinner party and it's this crazy like 250-page dinner party scene where the narrator is observing very closely all of the unwritten rules of conduct for this world that are kind of animated underneath the surface of an often very banal or kind of annoying or pretentious conversation. And when he's leaving the dinner party, he thinks to himself, well, I have to believe that if that party wasn't nearly as good as I hoped it was going to be for all of those years when I wasn't getting invited to parties like that, it must have been because I was there. Like maybe if I hadn't been there, it would have been the glamorous party that I had always imagined. So it's that kind of hilarious Groucho Marx, you know, sooner or later we all find with the things we idealize that once we get them, it's then easy to take them for granted or be disenchanted by them or not hold them up as having the same kind of incredible value as they held for us when we couldn't have them.
1: I think it's- difficult when you're younger reading Proust you think it's sort of a disenchantment of that that you think you could you could find what you want in life you could find love or you could find happiness and then you read this book and you think is he really stripping this away and kind of deconstructing it to the point that there is nothing there but I don't think that's quite what happens so in the third volume he's disenchanted with this society yeah but then the next volumes is The Captive or, and yeah. The Fugitive, which is about Albertine. Yeah, the woman he falls which,
0: in love with, like Swan, in the paragraph he read before. Right, with Odette. And yeah. he
1: starts investigating her the way you investigated these women. With, <laughs> yeah. with actually, I think, and people have talked a lot about Albertine, whether they like her or not, or whether she's a captive and whether she's a real character. What else but love could make somebody think about somebody in such a sustained fashion?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I mean, if that's a rhetorical question, I would say probably not much. And I think the answer that
1: if you didn't love these three women at some level, you wouldn't have spent seven years trying to reconstruct every coded missive they recorded because what is love but sustained attention? That's
0: right. No, you're exactly right. And that's where I love that you highlighted the word curiosity, because I think that love typically in Proust's novel, love is almost always associated with disenchantment. You know, sooner or later, Swan realizes that even though he winds up marrying her, Swan falls out of love with Odette at a certain point And he realizes she's just another woman. In fact, she's kind of much stupider as well as much sluttier than he had previously imagined. So there's a disenchantment that goes with love often in Proust. But I think that what what survives or what remains a kind of an animating force and one that Proust really cares about a lot because it's what drives his novel is this curiosity. So it's love, but also a curiosity about what happens when love goes away. My editor, Shelley Wanger from Knopf, she and I had so much fun working on this book together. And I would call her, at least every few days, we would talk for the seven years that I spent working on this book. And one of our constant conversational topics was, okay, who do we hate the most today? Because all these women... In many ways, there's incredible pathos to their stories. As you point out, they had effectively no rights, and yet they're also kind of in the public eye all the time and want to be. They're trying to find a way to shore up their own fragile sense of self when they're stuck in marriages with men who, in one case, you know, beat them and cheat on them rampantly, which was the Comtesse Graffule. Her husband had 300 mistresses in Paris alone when he died in the 1930s. Lord de husband was almost certainly in the closet and carrying on affairs with younger men, and Geneviève Strauss had married this man, Emile Strauss, who was a personal lawyer to the Rothschilds, basically for financial security and not for love. And so these women are stuck in and defined by these marriages that are supposed to be the be-all and end-all of their lives, but they're really unhappy. And so there's a way in which I loved these women because I was moved by how strangely hard it was to be them even in the midst of all this privilege but there were also plenty of days and hours and minutes when i couldn't stand them because they were arrogant and they were smug and they were stupid and so trying to pay attention to and attend to both of those aspects of these people became the sort of driving compulsion for me researching this novel and the weird things about writing biography is one has the tendency to compare oneself to one's subjects, and so the phrase that I always hate saying, and I'll say here with all the irony that it involves, is, like Proust, I was sort of driven by but this absolutely. complex but nexus that, of emotions. I going to say
1: this without, you know, hard to say, oh, like Proust, well, yeah. Proust. you weren't living in a cork-lined room. But and I'm not the great genius and of <laughs> all <laughs> under literature. Under seven yeah. blankets and a fur and yeah. standing for cold beer from the Ritz. Right. Which is what he did. <laughs> Would you know. have been nice if I could have written the book that way. <laughs> right. But what you said, you love these women in a sense of sustained attention, curiosity. It was devoting your life to their lives yeah. to actually find out what moved them, what motivated them. Discovering ugly, distasteful, horrible things. Yeah. Proust's novel is populated with people who we don't always admire. We almost you never, never Edmont, admire. Albertine, But I think these questions are kind of missed the point because yeah. he says you take an interest in someone else. And then you lose the affection for that person, which will happen to everyone and anyone. Yeah. Yeah. No one will stay idealized.
0: That's right. No one can stay but idealized. Yeah.
1: What do you do past that moment? And in some ways Swan is stuck. Yeah. He's stuck with Albertine, then commits this terrible things happen in yeah. you know, the fugitive, the end of La Prisonere or the, the captive is a terrible ending and then yeah. devastation when she's no longer part of his life. Yeah. And then he chronicles actually what had he missed yeah. while he was being disenchanted? Maybe yeah. there were things he should have actually valued yeah. and treasured. So in some way, that kind of honesty is very hard to take because you want to just say, it's simple. Yeah. Love is easy.
0: Yeah. No, you're exactly right, Uli. And one of my favorite reviews of Proust's Duchess was, this novelist who I admire so much in the New York Review of Books, called Kolm and oh, right. And he describes a scene that I talk about the kind of, again, the presumed real-life basis for a particular scene that involves Marcel and the Duchesse de Guermont in the novel, and Toynbee writes something like, you know, Proust describes it in this way so that we will recognize it, so we'll know what it's like when we are there. And to me, that was such a wise and beautiful assessment of what Proust is doing. And you're right that it kind of misses the point. And when we were younger and reading Proust the first or even the second time around, it's like, oh, well, you know, and can't this guy get happy? You know, he falls in love with these people who aren't right for him, and then he's miserable, and then he's obsessive. And why can't he just get over it and find what we presume to be the simplicity about actually finding your happiness in life? And the older you get, at least the older I've gotten, the more conscious I've become of the ways in which Proust is right in talking about all of the complexity and the disenchantment, but the sustained interest and the sustained connection to people who aren't always perfect, who never are perfect. I mean, Proust says axiomatically throughout the novel, the only way to stay enchanted with someone is never to get to know them. But that's not a solution that most of us can resort to all of the time in our lives. Maybe we're enchanted with some distant you know, movie star or head of state or sports figure that we'll never get to meet. But most of the time, we know the people in our lives to some degree. And it's kind of negotiating between what the image was that we had in our heads of them, and what the reality of that person is that kind of drives our interactions with and others.
1: What initially drives our interaction is maybe Swan meets Odette, or he sees Albertine spots her among a group of teenagers yeah. on the beach. There's infatuation, there's love, there's lust, there's erotic longing. Yeah. And then it becomes, in post-storytelling, this curiosity driven by jealousy. That yeah. You want to know everything they do when they're not with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that fascination gives you actually a deeper perspective of that personality. It's not driven by a noble motive. No, jealousy, not at all. But yeah. jealousy for him is the component which allows you to understand the other person more. Yeah. And then after that, maybe you've lost a kind of initial erotic charge. You don't find that person so fascinating anymore. Yeah. But you've learned so much. Yeah. And you've learned so much about yourself. Yeah. What you value, what you don't value. And I think this is where the book becomes really important for people. And why so many people quote it as a book that's changed their lives, because you start to realize the way I make sense of things Mm -hmm. can be shaped by the will I bring to that. Yeah. So when you wrote your book, I actually think the most moving thing I felt that you were able to hold these three women in your mind, and while they do despicable things to say (laughs) this, well, there's a level of compassion, not in a kind of silly way, but say, they tried to make the best. Yeah, they took advantage of people. They hurt people. Yeah, <clears throat> but there weren't many other options. They also yeah. couldn't see those options. Yeah, the yeah. option was kind of social ostracism or not being part of Le Monde. That's right. It,
0: That's right. Yeah, one of Proust's favorite writers at this period, when he's a young man and first discovering these women, is a moralist from the the court of Louis the Fourteenth in the seventeenth century called Jean de La Bruyere, and Proust loved this one quote from La Bruyere, which was. The only thing worse than having to be part of the court at Versailles is not being part of the court at Versailles. and that was kind of the mentality of these women with the only thing worse than not being an aristocratic society was not being valued enough to be included in it. But it was a cutthroat world. It was a shallow world. As you indicated before, it was a world that gave tremendous importance to matters of form, the, you know, the way in which you held out your hand to have it be kissed or for a handshake, the modes of address that you used to speak to other aristocrats or to royals. It's a very superficial world that these women give themselves over to, really for lack of other alternatives. But you're right. I appreciate what you say about compassion because without any of the condescension that that could imply, like, oh, these poor women, I have everything all figured out and they just couldn't get it right. It was, yeah, I've been in a bad marriage before, as you know, as you know, like I've been in situations where I've been unhappy or not felt like I had a lot of choices. And even if I haven't been the Duchesse de Guermont, there were so many things about these women's lives that to me seemed so human and relatable, and so many things about Proust's life. You know, he's a young writer. He wants to chronicle a world that doesn't really accommodate him. I mean, there are so many ways in which all of these people are just human beings where we can all find something to relate to or something that resonates. And Proust says somewhere in the seventh volume of his book, so at the end when he kind of is realizing that his mission in life has to be to reconstruct the world that he's just described for us in seven volumes and to try to transmute all of this bad and good experience in some kind of literary art, he says, I want this novel to be kind of a, I forget whether he says like a looking glass or a pair of glasses where the reader will use it to read Not my life, but his or her own. And that's really what he does. And so it was kind of in that spirit that I was trying to write about these women. I was writing about them very specifically. I'm not trying to hold them up as every woman for all readers to relate to. But my perspective on them really was, these must be people who, if I get to know them as well as I can by reconstructing their pasts by digging up their dirty secrets, maybe I can find something in them that will feel kind of universal or will feel kind of valuable to a reader in 21st century America, even readers who have no other interest in or connection to aristocratic society in 19th century Paris. I
1: I want to go back to when you read the book, you said in your 40s, you read it the second time. and You said you were going through a very difficult period. And part of what was difficult, you had to question your own choices that's right say what had I been blind to yeah oh god and yeah. what had I idealized or maybe it wasn't idealized. maybe it was real maybe yeah. it was great but it is no longer great yeah. yeah 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 so Bruce kind of puts you on a path to carefully rethink every single choice what value you attach to it what yeah. you dismissed what you overlooked yeah. which can when you're young seem a bit tedious because you want right. to rush through that you want to yeah. say oh this is great this is really working for me right now I love this yeah And then when it doesn't work that way, because nothing in life ever works that way, (laughs) Proust sort of goes along and says, this is the work it takes to think about your own thinking process. That's right,
0: that's right. And that's why Proust is so interesting, because it is the opposite of that kind of fairy tale schema, where it's just, you know, there's kind of some struggle, and there's a hero and a heroine at the end, they live happily ever after, and that's there's a reason why fairy tales appeal to the very young. It's because of that false simplicity that you can just find happiness, find the perfect love, find the perfect palace, and live there happily ever after. And Proust shows what it's like to be alive after you've gotten to that point that you feel it as a young person should have been your happy ending and should have been kind of steady state contentment for the rest of your life. It's never like that. He shows that so well and so interestingly. And what the sad thing about these women is that, especially Elizabeth Greful, the one whose servants Proust bribed, She got married when she was 17, and she really retained kind of the perspective of a child throughout her adult life. And her descendants wound up letting me have access to about 200 boxes worth of her private papers. And one of the things that was shocking reading them was the degree to which even when she was in her 30s, in her 40s and her 50s, she was still writing these kind of sad you know, Tears Stains on the Ink journal entries about, well, where is my fairy tale? I married the handsome, you know, her husband who cheated on her with at least 300 women. Her husband was considered one of the most eligible bachelors in the Parisian aristocracy. And when she married him, she was 17 or 18. He was 30. And she thought she had her fairy tale ending and everything about her upbringing had led her to believe that finding this man and having this marriage who had the title that he did, who had the prestige that he did in society and the money and the influence and the connection to royals and aristocrats all over Europe, she somehow thought that was supposed to be a permanent guarantor of happiness. And the sad thing about learning about her life in much more detail for me was realizing that unlike Proust, she never really learned her lesson. She kept clinging to these kind of ideals, these simplistic ideals that couldn't hold up to real experience, to real life. She was in love from afar with one of her husband's first cousins, and the guy was very clearly not interested in her, the Italian prince. And you can see it. You can see reading his letters to her and her letters to him that they're writing. to. It's two different correspondences. The Italian prince is writing back to her saying... Don't count on me. I'm going to just, I need to, you know, stay here in Italy with my mother. I've got to do travels. I, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to mess up your life. You know, the kind of, it's not you, it's me. And then she's writing to him saying, but you're my Prince Charming. You're my handsome so prince. So she
1: doesn't give up on this fantasy That's right. <coughs> that a woman's life will be redeemed or yeah. r- realized and completed by this prince other person. Prince Charming. Yeah. And Post in the Seven Novels kind of takes that away and says, That's you right. will not be. You will not be completed by another person, yeah. but you will become a deeper person. Yeah. It doesn't make you happier. Yeah. I think a lot of people say this, a great book out, How post Can Change Your Life. And oh, yeah. I always caution my students when you know I teach literature, I teach a lot of this kind of wisdom literature. Yeah, yeah. And say, what do you want to change in your life? And I've asked my students, what is so bad about your life right now? And yeah. I think what Proust is also saying, <laughs> if you want to change your life, just change it. Yeah. But this idea that you're going to look at the Italian prince, you're going to look at Proust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is a big mistake in some ways to say Proust can change your life, which yeah. is a great book and really wonderful read. Yeah. But just, first of all, in that question, what in my life needs changing? Yeah. And secondly, is another life better? That's right. That yeah. This external other life is actually, that's the better life I don't have right now. I'm stuck here. If only this were to change, I would be happy. And Puss yeah. says, you would still be then thinking you made this choice, which will, with time, become something else. You yeah. will not stay in that moment of happiness, of ecstatic transport, that yeah. when you see the Duchesse de Gaumont mm-hmm. the first time yeah. up close... And you, you, you notice you... that she
0: has a pimple on her nose and yeah. is wearing an ugly scarf. Yeah, it won't be that transporting.
1: It, it won't be that. And if you write to the prince in Italy and keep on saying, I'm here for you, and he says, Well, <laughs> actually, hold off. <laughs> yeah. Not, no. Don't Not call me. Work. I'll call you. Yeah. yeah. So, it, in some ways, this idea that there's life outside of life. I think the novel actually says, The life within you is the life you have.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, I think that's really wisely. And I think also, the life within you is the life you have. And also, even if you want to quote unquote change your life, the rest of humanity is the same, you know? So even if you're the extraordinary person who's capable of being loyal to and worshipful of whatever romantic ideal you have or whatever friend is your best friend when you're a young person and you think they're going to be your best friend forever or you decide, you know, the narrator of Proust's novel goes through all these different sort of phases of infatuation with the Duchesse de Guermont, with the Duchesse de Guermont's nephew, who's this kind of young aristocratic soldier that the narrator, who's a kind of sickly, asthmatic, geeky middle-class kid really admires the sort of debonair panache of this nobleman warrior. The Duchesse de Guermont, that idealization fades and turns into something you know much more critical. The fascination with this young aristocratic warrior fades and turns into something much more critical. The obsession with this young woman, Albertine, the obsession with traveling to Holland or to Venice, these two places where the sickly narrator is worried that he'll be too ailing ever to travel to. He conceives of all these sort of things that he idealizes, only to find out that they're not what he hoped. But even if somehow you could change that about yourself, if I could change that about myself, the rest of the world would still be operating according to similar laws of idealization and disenchantment. And we want what we can't have. And we get tired of things that we know too well. We stop paying attention. So the maybe not even the pessimistic, but the realistic message of Proust's novel is that human nature is always the same it functions according to these laws whether you're a young middle-class you know asthmatic kid whether you're a duchess whether you are a vest maker whether you are a violinist all these other characters whether you are the family cook from marcel's family all of these human beings who are so wonderfully drawn so finely and richly depicted in the novel they all do things that are essentially human and that run and, the whole gamut of kind and, of human activities. And, and emotions. what are these laws? These yeah. laws
1: are sort of a projection or something. He says, it. I'll give you another quote here. Oh. This is from The Fugitive. The long plaint of the soul, which <laughs> thinks that it is living shut up within itself, is a monologue in appearance only, since the echoes of reality alter its course. I thought this was an interesting quote because the book can strike you as a bit of a monologue. So sort of, this is yeah. a boy who you know, waits for his mother to come put him to bed. This is a boy who sees somebody else and gets infatuated. Yeah. This is a boy whose grandmother is the figure who gave him love, but she's no, yeah. no longer with us. But he says, no, the echoes of reality alter its course, alter the course of the soul. Yeah. So in some ways, what you said, the laws of humanity are not laws only that apply to one person That's right. in their own mind. That's right. So everybody else also has these laws. I think that's a big realization. We are deeply connected. It's actually such an incredible social book.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you don't even for this solipsistic-seeming narrator who spends the first 30 pages trying to fall asleep, it's this man who's a young boy, and then by the end of the novel, he's a middle-aged man, who's, yeah, constantly... Even when he retreats into his own mind and is kind of spinning furious, jealous theories about what Albertine might or might not have been up to at the beach resort with other men or other women who might or might not have been her lovers, the solipsism of that kind of the inward lookingness of that narration is still, even at its most inward looking moments, engaging with these echoes of reality. And, and so,
1: and the echoes of reality are really other people. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. He said it's a very it's such a richness of detail in this novel, but at the same time it seems to me only people by human beings that's right it's such an incredibly social novel in a strange way and oh, yeah. you know people know all these people and then but that these other people actually allow you to become who you are if you are honest about how your relationship with them works Yeah. There's, there's Françoise, who I actually really adore. Who is the, the she's the, one of the great characters the in Proust. Yeah, the family cook. Who's yeah. initially the family cook for the for the uh, the, the aunt. The aunt, yeah. Mind, who's in her who's crazy. Who's yeah. in her bed. Yeah,
0: in so. <laughs> like in the village in the provinces, like tormenting her servant and, and yeah.
1: tormenting her servant and being completely dependent and playing her against another yeah. niece or somebody. Eulalie, who's oh who's yeah her, it, yeah. But then the servant becomes kind of a foil. Not because she's simpler and has more. She's just another person.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the things I really love about Proust, and I think maybe this is another reason why people, once you get into him, it's hard not to love him, is that Proust refused the idea of the simple answer or the simple solution or the shorthand. And he hated cliche of any kind. And so the idea of like, when you meet Francoise, who's the family cook who previously worked for the crazy old aunt in the provinces, every instinct, I think, of the reader is to move toward the cliche of, oh, Francoise, the simple peasant woman with the heart of gold. And Francoise has this kind of very uneducated, rural way of speaking and these kind of colorful malapropisms that she uses and this tremendous pride in a particular beef dish that she makes when an important member of the foreign ministry comes over to have dinner with uh, Marcel's family. So you see all these things where you could just say, oh, she's the wonderful, kindly servant woman with a heart of gold. But as you say, in fact, that's not her at all. She is another person, and she has a lot of foibles and flaws. The narrator at one point, because he has been thinking of her in terms of this cliché, she's our devoted old peasant woman who loves me. He overhears her one day complaining to another servant about how lazy he, Marcel, is, and you know he is this sickly, asthmatic kid, and he overhears Françoise say, that kid isn't even worth the rope i could hang him with and it rocks Bruce, it rocks marcel's world because his <laughs> whole idea of this woman as like the kindly good-hearted peasant woman who's devoted him is completely upended by the fact that she can just say this one sentence but of course it's a much more realistic portrayal to think yeah right. the the quote unquote kindly good-hearted servant mm-hmm. who's quote unquote devoted to the family of course she's going to have days when she's really frustrated by her employers but and
1: she's and an important figure in the albertine books and the, oh, two, yeah. the captive and the fugitive because she actually has a very strong opinion of Albertine but she somehow still is there as a servant who helps him out but at a very critical moment when the narrator learns something about Albertine and opens a letter he's paying more attention to the eye of Françoise what she sees in him yeah and what she sees in him is what he doesn't know about himself. That's right. So the other people become not just mirrors, but actually sort of openings into understanding yourself. That's right. If we look, if, if we, we look. pay attention,
0: if we don't overwrite the other person with the cliche That's of, right. There's my kindly old servant who loves or, me.
1: Or there's the kind of society grand dame Yeah, who is so the beautiful and, duchesse who's and so and she, perfect. As you said always shows up in a kind of cloud of tulle. Yeah, and, <laughs> and and like veils and, veils and feathers. And
0: feathers. <laughs> yeah, like whirling around. <laughs> and, yeah.
1: And she wants to create that image. She of said, course. I'm only an image for you. Yeah. And then what you did, you kind of lifted the veil, so to speak, in a yeah. way and said, like, actually, these people are very complex. Yeah. And you said at some point that Proust sort of didn't give them quite the complexity He hints at it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that actually, to me, was a great conundrum about Proust and one of the reasons why I wanted to write about this character in particular and these women in particular, that Proust, so many of the characters in the book are so subtly portrayed with so many odd, you know, complicated traits and interesting kind of seeming contradictions within their characters like any real human being that one gets to know well. But the Duchesse de Guermont, because of the huge social distance between Marcel and the Duchesse de Guermont in her capacity, again, as this sort of icon of aristocratic society... There's always a certain distance between Marcel and the Duchess that never collapses. He never really gets to know her as a human being, even when she invites him over and he can observe the ways in which, even though her friends are all complimenting her on how nice she is to the servants, she's secretly like tormenting one of her footmen just because she's bitter that he's in love with a girl in the country and she's got a miserable marriage. She decides to be nasty to this servant just because she can. And so Marcel notices these little idiosyncrasies and unpleasant aspects of her character, but to a certain extent, he always is looking at her with his nose pressed to the glass. And so to me, she's actually the Duchess, even though she's an important character who is in all seven volumes, basically, of this novel, unlike so many of the other characters, she's one of the ones who's drawn with the least humanity in the least richness and complexity. And I wanted to kind of understand who that woman or those real life women who inspired her, who those people were, because there seemed to be still a kind of a blind spot for Proust that limited the degree to which he could get close to them and really see them for who they were. And of course, it's much easier when you're a biographer and you're sitting with pages and pages and pages of their private diaries, things that Proust never got to see. It, it was a much easier task for me to talk about who they were in reality, because I could... Review all this kind of documentary evidence that Proust never had access to. But I
1: think what you showed is that the figures on which he models this, and you said it's, you know, Proust wrote Contre Saint Beuve, he said like the biographical reading of fiction is not useful really yeah. to say these characters kind of one to one matches. Yeah. But you say the complexity somehow still, even if the Duchesse de Garmont is not quite as fully drawn, yeah. something intrigues him in her, that he also may not be able to know. That there's something, unknowability of the other person. Because a lot of the two volumes on Albertine and Swan and Odette, he never thinks he totally knows. And you don't. The bad part of that is jealousy. The wonderful part is that another person remains an enigma. There's always something new in that person. That is wonderful because you discover what they like, what they love, who they are. But you also discover who they are. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) It's a double-edged sword, that kind of discovery.
1: The scandal of the Dreyfus Affair, which comes, and it'll be the second book that you're writing now. It sort of takes place a little bit after what you wrote. Can you just say something about that? Because the book has been considered such a psychological novel, but the Dreyfus Affair signals really an end to this era in a certain way. People have to take tremendously dramatic sides. Yeah. I in the country, can you just outline what's at stake also for this, you know, Jewish narrator? Well, yeah,
0: uh, no, you know, the Dreyfus Affair. So my original plan was to write a book that covered basically The 1880s, when these three women who were a kind of a generation older than Proust, when the 1880s, when these were young women were first entering society, first making these marriages that turned them into these aristocratic mavens. And it was supposed to go all the way up until 1922 when Proust died. But I got so much material from the families and from other sources that I wound up only writing about the first nine years of these women's lives when Proust is still a young man, a teenager, a child. And I ended the book in 1894 just when the first rumblings of this massive, horrible national scandal called the Dreyfus Affair were starting to make themselves heard. And so Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish-French artillery captain in the French army. And in 1894, he was in January—my book ends in May 1894. In December 1894, Dreyfus was court-martialed, called before a military court, and accused of and convicted of treason for selling or giving military secrets to the Prussians who were still France's kind of great residual enemy. France in 1870, 1871 had been through the Franco-Prussian War, which they lost Alsace and Lorraine, these sort of territories that were on the border between themselves and Prussia. They had to pay... I well, actually ups- spent
1: my childhood summers. <laughs> oh, in really? Alsace, did you really? <laughs>
0: I never knew that about a you. Mill really?
1: Pond in Alsace-Lorraine. How?
0: And did you feel French or German when you were on <laughs> the...
1: Yeah. It felt very French, but I sort of knew it was kind of a nomad. And land in yeah. between those two countries? Because yeah. people spoke their own language. It's a weird, segment. right? Yeah.
0: That kind of language is so interesting. Right. And so, yeah, and that's another whole interesting topic because that's also a very kind of Jewish part of traditionally, it's where a lot of Prussian Jews wound up kind of taking refuge when it became French and Napoleon was giving certain rights to the Jews. But anyway, and so Alfred Dreyfus, in fact, came from, I think he came from Alsace, but maybe he came from Lorraine, but he considered himself French and he was railroaded on these charges of high treason and giving secrets to this enemy who had very recently subjected France to one of the most humiliating defeats she had ever known and the most costly. And it became clear, within the military kind of high command, very early on, and this information started to leak out in the late 1890s, that in fact the documents on the basis of which Dreyfus had been convicted were not written in his handwriting as had been decreed by the military court, and that actually some of them had been forged to help cover up the fact that the high command knew that Dreyfus wasn't the author of these documents. So he, meanwhile, is on an island off of Africa in solitary confinement shackled to a wall for years for something that he didn't do. And once it it comes out that there was this big cover-up and this big attempt to essentially frame an innocent man. France, as a nation, basically split into two bitterly antagonistic parties, the people who believed that Dreyfus was innocent and or that he had been subjected to this terrible injustice. And at very least, he needed to be given a new trial with more of the evidence kind of shown in an open court. And then there was the part of France and the aristocracy mostly tended to line up with this side, the anti-Dreyfusard side, was the side that said either, well, he was by definition guilty because he was a Jew, which is already problematic, and or... He doesn't deserve a retrial, and we shouldn't make a big case about this all over again, because what's most important in France is the sort of sanctity and integrity of the army. And we can't go spilling the dirty secrets of the army because that will weaken France as a nation. It wasn't for nothing that the aristocracy was traditionally a warrior class. It was a military class. The oldest branch of the French nobility was called the noblesse d'épée, the nobility of the sword. And so the kind of atavistic and anti-Semitic impulses in the aristocracy generally led these people whom the young bourgeois half-Jewish Proust idealized from afar, it turned them into very open and often raving anti-Semites. Proust and uh, Geneviève Strauss, this Jewish honorary member of the French Catholic aristocratic mold, were on the side of Dreyfus. And that became a very divisive and kind of conclusively antagonistic moment for France. Uh, Geneviève Strauss, because she even dared to say within her own salon on Sunday afternoons to some of the aristocrats who were there that she thought Dreyfus was being treated badly and should have a trial, she was abandoned by most of her aristocratic friends.
1: So her status and belonging was only paper thin. That's right. As soon as she actually said, this man deserves a fair trial, they said, your allegiance is with your people. Right which is against France. That's right. So the lines had been drawn. So anybody who was on the side of Dreyfus was Jewish or Or protecting the Jews and therefore against France. So it was either or it was us versus them. It was what we call tribal today in politics. Oh, yeah. In this completely drastic way. And then... Proust as a person, as a mm-hmm. writer, took a stance, as did yeah. Zola and other people. Yeah, so yeah. the writers became a very forceful way in which to redefine this battle.
0: Yeah, it was the moment when actually the word intellectual as a noun was used for the first time. That term was coined during the Dreyfus Affair, I think by Clemenceau, and when all these writers decided that they needed to be publicly engaged in this big, you know, fight for social justice, essentially. And so Proust was a young man. He wasn't a famous writer, so it didn't cost him a lot to come out. You know, Zola had to flee to England. He was England. Placed on trial, he was threatened with prison because of the fact that Zola was speaking out against the French army. He was and, therefore decreed a in traitor your book to France. That
1: ironically, the journal that was the most anti-Semitic organ was called Parole Libre, Free Speech. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. There was a kind of anti-Semitic campaign to already set this up that the Jews were the problem for France. Right. In, That's in right. That's <laughs> right. And then in the novel, this shows up oh, yeah. several times. And. Tell me how that shows up, and then I want to get to the red shoe on the cover of your book. Oh, which sure. Which in the novel in an important yeah, way. Yeah, sure, times. absolutely.
0: Yeah, <laughs> even friends I always know when they haven't made it all the way through the book, when they say, But why did you have a red shoe on the cover? No. And actually, it's in, like, I don't know, chapter yes. 20 or something, right. But which admittedly is a long way to read. But no, so the way the Dreyfus affair shows up in the novel is fascinating. And it's why, in addition to the simple fact that Proust was half Jewish, that one of the three women who were my main protagonists in my book, Genevieve Strauss, was Jewish, I was interested in kind of the latent or the the simmering anti-Semitism in the aristocratic world that was basically waiting to explode with the Dreyfus Affair. And so all through the 1880s and the early 1890s, there are these surges of anti-Semitism. There's the development of this kind of small but powerful and increasingly influential anti-Semitic press. And I was interested in that, again, not just for the biographical connections to my characters, but because that in Proust's novel, Marcel, who is like Marcel Proust in many ways, but he's not Jewish, actually his entry into aristocratic society, his first and second invitations into the world of the Germant coincide exactly with the explosion of the Dreyfus Affair as a national scandal. And so this narrator, who is ostensibly not Jewish, is at these aristocratic parties overhearing or participating in conversations where the aristocracy are being very frankly and unabashedly anti-Semitic. And so for the narrator, the discovery of the aristocratic mold or aristocratic society and the discovery of aristocratic anti-Semitism happen at the same time. And so Proust shows that one can't separate the aristocracy as this kind of clannish French Catholic tribe with a deep-seated belief in blood and lineage and, you know, French heritage, and I put that in quotes, that you can't separate the clannishness and the ancient history of this noble caste, you can't separate it from anti-Semitism. And the person who really is the victim in the novel of this confluence is Charles Swann, who, in addition to being kind of a forerunner for the narrator, as a jealous lover of this woman who he finds out, you know, it was all these things that he didn't realize and but also Charles Swann, like my character Jean Viev Strauss, was an honorary member of the aristocratic milieu despite his Jewishness. And during the Dreyfus affair, the narrator of Proust's novel actually overhears characters in the aristocratic world saying, Swan could have been a little bit more grateful for all that we've done for him. After letting him be around us for all these years, now he wants to tell us that Dreyfus is innocent because Swan, like Geneviève, becomes an outspoken Dreyfusard in favor of trying to get justice for this terribly persecuted army captain. And so you actually see the ways in which Swan loses his aristocratic entree and privilege as a function of the stand that he takes on that matter. And that's exactly what happened to Geneviève Strauss in real life. But it's the beginning of the end for Swan, basically. And essentially, he dies of grief a few years later, because the value that he gave to aristocratic society had been so great. He had spent his whole life getting into this world and then remaining an important and beloved member of this world, all of that goes away. And he realizes the people he thought were his friends for decades were not, in fact, his friends.
1: So the disillusionment with society is not just for proofs that you can't find happiness and love there, but actually there's an insincerity that goes very, very deep. Yeah. People will be expelled. Yeah. Even though it flies in the face of justice, flies in the face of what a nation should be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. And so I think this is really interesting how the book then sort of takes that inside of... And there are scenes when there's very strange kind of alliances and people sort of go to their priest and say you should pray for... Dr- Dreyfus, the, but Dreyfus, don't tell Dreyfus, my husband. But don't <laughs> tell my husband, and the husband has done the same thing. So they yeah. are weird revelations, actually, of where yeah. the lines are drawn.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, and I love your sentence about this insincerity that goes very deep. And you know, Proust makes that observation at several points throughout the novel that the aristocracy in particular... Because it is a throwback to and a holdover from court culture, uh, you know, in Versailles and the glory days of the absolutist monarchy in France, one of the things that Louis XIV did to consolidate his very real political power was to turn matters of form and protocol and etiquette into the ultimate conditions of belonging to his court. And so there were certain numbers of lace you were allowed to wear on your sleeve if you were a particular rank. And, you know, duchesses had what was called the right of the stool, le droit du tabouret, where they could sit on a stool in the presence of the king, but nobody else was allowed to sit. All these little kind of petty, superficial matters of protocol actually became what defined the high aristocracy as a class. And Proust is fascinated by the way in which that, by the late 19th century, is pretty much all the aristocracy has left of its own history, is this obsession with matters of form. And something like being a Jew is just a violation of these matters of form. And so...
1: But what you have is a conflict between tradition, which holds on to dead, hollow, old forms to protect its power. That's right. And the need for innovation. And in some ways, I think we're living through this in our country right now, where norms are are being abolished and ignored. And people say, that's good. It's all just been silly. We We needed to break it apart. We need to break this apart. We need to challenge all these conventions. But if you do that, what do you have left? So Proust does the labor to think what would substitute for genuine yeah. relations, for yeah. genuine human relations if you thought about what the norms are, rather yeah. than just what you called earlier cliche, cliche, yeah. just a form of behavior. Yeah. This is how it's always done. Yeah. And this is why it's good.
0: Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean you still hear that in France, like if you hear a French mother usually yelling at her little kid and the kids, are, But why? You know, why can't I do that? Because that isn't done that way. Right. Ça se fait pas. You know, right. that you know, that isn't done. We don't right. do that. There's never any substance to that. It's it's a matter of form takes precedence over everything. And, and that's the drama of the Red Shoe. And so one of the famous scenes in Proust's novel at the end of Volume 3, when the narrator has just been to this first-time dinner party for him at the Duchesse de Guermantes, he happens to witness as kind of a voyeur, not exactly peering in through a window, but he's on the fringes of this scene that's happening where he's standing in the courtyard of the Paris mansion of the Duke and Duchesse de Guermantes, And Swan, who is supposedly the Duchesse's best friend, comes over and the Duke and Duchess are on their way out to a fancy dress ball. And because it's the Dreyfus affair, normally Swan would have been going to this ball with them. But now it's very clear that Swan isn't welcome at the ball these people are going to. And they're torn between wanting to be polite to the Duchess's supposed best friend and wanting to get to their ball on time and kind of wanting to get rid of him. And so, But they're making conversation with him to try to sort of be affable and polite for a few minutes. And they say something about how they would love for him to come on a trip to Italy that they're planning the following year. And he says, well, you know, I wasn't planning to tell you this in this way, but actually my doctor has only given me a few months to live. Like, I won't even be around by the time you make this trip. And the narrator watching the Duchess's face says that he sees in her eyes that for the first time in her life, she's torn between absolute allegiance to these matters of politesse and protocol and the imperative to actually try to be a decent and kind human being to a friend who needs her. And
1: the first one, protocol, is How we've been taught to behave. We know how to do this. And the other one is, how do you behave? impulsively as a human being when another right. human being is in distress. That's right. But it's not a wrong struggle. Yeah. She said, I've been taught to behave in a certain way my whole life. Right. My whole, the edifice of my life is constructed around this. Yeah. And I don't know what to do
0: now. That's right. No, that's exactly right. I think that's actually the scene that Colm Toybean talks about in his review of my book in the New York Review of Books where he says, you know, Proust is showing us this scene not just to say, as is often said, oh, and the Duchess de Germain is so terrible because her best friend is dying and she doesn't even care. But Toybin says, you know, it's. So that we will know how to react in that moment because we've all been confronted with those things where you don't want to hurt a person's feelings but you need to do something else or there's kind of the superficial response or there's the deeper response that's more complicated and it doesn't automatically spring to mind. It's
1: actually interesting when you're in teaching or when you're giving lectures or when you're in public and someone doesn't feel well Yeah, and you don't know whether to break protocol and actually say, we got to take care of this person right now versus we got to continue with the program. The show must go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She runs a show. Yeah. It's a a big show. It's It's a a big show. show. And And she's the star. The show must go on. Or can she break out of her presumed role for a moment and say, and her friend, her longtime friend says, I'm dying. Yeah.
0: And the sad answer is that she can't. And so when, you know, these real life women who are the models for her are faced with those kinds of situations, I think part of what winds up being very sad and incomplete about their lives is that they're very well trained in these matters of form, but they don't know quite how to make the human connection. You know, that's almost becomes a sort of a stunted faculty. And the red shoe in Proust symbolizes what happens next in the exchange with Swan, which is so the Duchess, you see that at least she is genuinely distressed to learn that her friend is dying but she doesn't know what to do about that. She says something like, oh, you know, I'm sure you're kidding, and, you know, that that's just one you're of your little jokes. You're exaggerating. You know, you're know, you exaggerating. You're exaggerating. And she says, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll have lunch next week, and we'll talk about everything, and the narrator comments for the Duchess de Guillermo, everything could be resolved by having lunch next week. Like, that it's like this superficial thing, but you can see that at least it's not that she's entirely cold-hearted or blind to the dilemma her friend is in. She just doesn't know what to do. She does want to get to her ball. As you say, she's running a big show. The show must go on. She has to get to her ball, because that's that's what she does as the Duchesse de Guermont. But then the moment of horror comes when her husband who is a nasty piece of work, who doesn't seem to have a decent human emotion or instinct in his body. He's kind of trying to hurry her along. And he's sort of being gruff with Swan and saying, you understand, we have to get there on time. You know, there's pulley test demands that we be there at a certain time, and we've really just got to get going. So he's being sort of dismissive of Swan until he looks down and his wife is stepping up into the carriage and she's wearing this long fire engine red ball gown. And he sees that she's wearing black shoes. And he says, Orion, which is her first name, what on earth are you wearing? Those black shoes look horrible with a red dress. Go upstairs immediately and change into red shoes. And she immediately looks at Swan and says to her husband, well, remember we just said that we kind of have to get going now and we don't have time to chat anymore? And her husband, who's also stupid in addition to being mean, says, oh, no, we've got all the time in the world. Just run back on upstairs. You'll be much better off with a red shoe on. And so she sends somebody for the red shoes and, you know, and waits there. And meanwhile, Swan, who's just been told that his dying is a matter that has to be brushed over quickly in the name of getting to this ball, is then shown that actually the color shoes of his best friend matter more than the news that he only has a few months left to live. And so for people who know and love Proust, this is one of the scenes that's kind of indelibly associated with the Duke and Duchesse de Guermont. And I didn't choose the cover of this book, but one of the ways in which at Knopf we were sort of struggling with how to represent what this book is about, is it's a book about four people. It's a book about Proust and three women, and there's no photograph of the four of them together. That just doesn't exist. And what kind of symbol or what kind of image could you give to a story about this world that's a constant struggle between matters of beautiful surface and matters of, hidden or poorly addressed pain. And so one of the book jacket designers at Knopf came up with this image, and the red shoe that she found was actually a red shoe that had belonged to the Comtesse Greffule. Mm -hmm. So it it was really a wonderful discovery on the part of the art department at Knopf. And for me, it really is a nice way of trying to show what my book is about, which is this character in Proust who is, for better and for worse, Locked into a world where matters of surface will always take precedence over matters of deeper human feeling or satisfaction or fulfillment.
1: And then he gives us seven novels which are deceptively about the surface world, which yeah. underneath is not just cracking, but just completely crumbled. That's right. And is staked on some horrible facts of exclusion. Yeah, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, homophobia, etc., yeah. sexism, all oh, these yeah. things that you identify actually yeah. staked on things that are really that we consider untenable today, yeah. except that they're still around. Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> plus ça change, plus <laughs> c'est la right. même chose.
1: Thank you so much, Carrie. And I, I really love this conversation. <laughs> me
0: too, Uli. You were the person I was most excited <laughs> to get to talk to about this book. So thank you for having so me I on your you podcast. I wish you the
1: best of luck. And thank I hope in your cork-lined room, you'll, <laughs> you'll have a lot of fun with the remaining, I don't know, 280 oh, boxes. Yeah, <laughs>
0: can you invite me back in seven more years?
1: Uh, we will make it faster, so I'll give you a deadline. So okay. come back sooner than that.
0: All right, mm-hmm. great, Thanks.
1: Thank you.